there is hope in this work. It's not all bad. <laughs> it's not. I I have I work now in a space of a museum that actively talks about it. The it's colonial history that has that has signage that points to that history. That um, all of it. So I, and that we talk about it extensively all the time about how we can do better. Um, it's possible. It's not a hopeless cause, but it takes the work and humility on everyone doing the work. Hello, Radical and Resilient listeners. It's one of your two favorite podcast hosts, Laura. You've probably noticed that for the past couple of weeks, there has not been an episode in your podcast feed. And here's what's been going on. Katie, our resident queen of resilience herself, had to take a temporary break from our work to deal with a fairly significant well-being issue. And then she actually accepted a fabulous new job opportunity. And we're here to support her to do that. But it meant that we had to take a little break. We have five more episodes of the show coming your way to close out our first season. And don't worry, there will be a second season. And those will be airing in your podcast feed starting next week. However, this week, while we are taking this short break, we saw an opportunity to share with you a very meaningful conversation I had with Dr. Miranda Roberts on the topic of Indigenous land acknowledgement. Now, are you not sure what the heck that is? Well, that is okay. Uh, It's actually perfect. And all you need to know is that this is a topic which fits squarely under the domain of resilience. Dr. Roberts is a Northern Paiute and Chicana. She is an educator, a curator, and museum consultant. Recently, she was the co-curator of the Native American wing of the Chicago Field Museum, and now she's the education manager for the Museum of Us in San Diego. She is also the co-host of the Exhibiting Kinship podcast, which you should absolutely check out right after you listen to this one. Our conversation was very timely as we are releasing this episode in the month of November, which is Native American Heritage Month. This is a time to honor the culture and heritage that millions of Native people share with us daily. And uh, this is our time to listen. Now, for context, this conversation is one part of a larger project Katie and I have been working on outside of our work on radical resilience, and this one is on the topic of land acknowledgments, specifically in making creating a land acknowledgment clear, easy, and meaningful with Indigenous voices at the center and including a clear path to support Indigenous people and their causes. This is now live and it can be used by you, our listeners, institutions, and by individuals across North America. And we invite you to check it out after listening to my amazing conversation with Dr. Roberts. Now, on with the show. Hello, welcome, and thank you for joining me today. My name is Laura Ingalls, one of the creators of this land acknowledgement project that brought you here. I acknowledge today that I am recording live from the unceded territory of the Lene Lenape. I live, work, sleep, and play on the unceded land of the Pocomtuck and Nipmuc, adjacent to the Wampanoag and the ancestral lands of the Mohicans. I acknowledge, thank, and honor them for 
stewarding the land sustainably. And I reaffirm my commitment to respecting and being responsible for the land, for myself, for them and their traditions, and making space for their voices to be central in my listening. And today with us is one of our collaborators, Dr. Miranda Roberts. And Miranda, I will let you introduce yourself. Thank you for having me. Yes, and for the introduction, I am Miranda Roberts. I am an enrolled citizen of the Urington Paiute tribe, as well as Chicana. And I am currently on the traditional unceded homelands of the Kumeyaay Nation in San Diego, California, who have been here since time and memorial and have consistently always been sustaining this land. So I give my homage to them and their ancestors. Welcome, Miranda. I'm so excited to have this conversation <laughs> with you and to create this for the project. Um, because I, what I, I know that I'm hoping to create here for our listeners is some conversational context for what we're up to in this project and wanting to just start out with a conversation around what is land acknowledgement, why I would give one, who gives land acknowledgements, who could give land acknowledgements. But I think in the, at the heart of it is like, what is it? And I know you and I just gave like a little mini example in our introduction, but I think it's a question that I get asked a lot as I've been talking about this project and inviting others in, and I'm sure that you have gotten that as well. Um, so when you, when you get asked that question, what do you say of what is a land acknowledgement in its heart? Yeah, I think that's the biggest question I've always yeah. gotten in terms of this topic is what is a land acknowledgement and how do you do a good one, right? And I think it depends on everyone's positionality in this life. So for me, I'm an indigenous woman and I see it like this, like I'm, my community is in Nevada, in Northern Nevada. Um, and so I'm not traditionally from these lands. I'm not traditionally from San Diego. Um, I may have grown up in Southern California, um, but there has been groups of people who have been here long before my existence who have prayed and worked and loved and took care of this land long before I was even here. And it's my responsibility to give homage to that and to pay respect to the ancestors that came here before me to make sure that this land was provided, is here for me and to sustain me and to provide for me. And in my way of thinking, at least it's, it's way of, of showing that respect that I honor that level of love and sacrifice that was given to the land and the people before colonization. And that understanding that um, those individuals or people from other communities would do the same for my community if they were in Nevada, if they were presenting in Nevada. It's a sign of respect of understanding, like, even though I'm not from here, there has been lines of people, minds of generations who have taken care of the space long before me and who will continuously fight to do it long after me. Um, and it's the best equivalent I can always get to someone is like when you are going to someone's house, like a friend's house for dinner or, you know, some, a coworker's house, you usually bring like a bottle of wine, if that's appropriate, or you bring some, a dish to share out of a sign of respect for them letting you into your home. And I kind of see it that same sort of way. Mm. I think that's such a perfect analogy. It's like, what are you, what are you bringing to the party to contribute? to, mm -hmm. uh, but specifically to contribute to the people whose house it is. And exactly. yeah, I think that, um, 
you know, for me, as I, when I first encountered a land acknowledgement, it, like, I really like what you said about the, like, it has to do with positionality, like where you are. And so for you, there's a certain position that you're looking at a land acknowledgement from as an indigenous woman, both, you know, that connection to how you would want others to be if they're on your land and how you, how that shapes your perspective when you're on someone else's land. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think for me, um, just, it was like an awakening to the fact that I was on someone else's land. (laughs) Like, like I think in the back of my head, like I sort of knew that, you know, I'm, I'm a, I like to think of myself as, you know, a, forward thinking, like mm-hmm. woke person, I guess, to use the modern slang, but like there is always blind spots or new things to learn because there really is so much in the, in that world of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think we've done a, a particularly poor job of educating, um, educating people in the indigenous history of the, of the United States, for example, like, it, it's like you know we came here on the on the Mayflower. No one was here except for a couple of people, and you know they didn't really have anything modern. We brought all the good stuff. Then we had Thanksgiving, and all has been well since then. And maybe you might get a little something about the Trail of Tears, but like that happened a really long time ago, and now everybody's on their reservations, and we're all good. Like it doesn't. Yeah. It, if you even get that much, like there are a lot of people who aren't even present to that, and um, you know. And, and for myself, it was like the beginning of an unlearning process, right? And, and just like sort of a light shining on a blind spot that I didn't know that I had. And, um, and being a little bit of a history nerd, it certainly, I think, played into like, I wanted to do more research now at that point. And then I just fell down a rabbit hole of like, what else can I learn? What else can I learn? But, mm-hmm. um, but I think in create crafting a land acknowledgement for myself for the first time, it's been um, like, to me, what a land acknowledgement is, is it's an opportunity to really understand a little bit more about the history of the land that I occupy and about the people who historically lived and were stewards of the land. And what, where are they now? You know, mm-hmm. what is the modern what is the modern position of those people? Are they still here, like the Nipmuc? Are they and the Pocantuck? Or are they, you know, living in the Midwest somewhere, like the Mohicans? And, mm-hmm. you know, and to have a greater understanding of present day space, um, mm-hmm. which is, I feel like, obviously, was like a, like a given to you because you're like, I'm here. So there was not necessarily like a learning of I'm here, right? You're here. Mm-hmm. But for me, it was like, oh, like I didn't even, I'd never heard the word Pokemon Tech before I did a land acknowledgement. Right. And so, um, um, so I think that it's like an awakening to the, to what's happening right now. And then that gives a little bit of access to like, what could I do to support indigenous people to understand a little bit more about the modern community and be in more harmony with it? Like I might, you know, if I don't even know someone's there, how can I know that, you know, something I'm doing or participating in might not 
like might be detrimental to them. Like it gives me choice, I guess, is what I'm, what I'm seeing as like the purpose of a land acknowledgement is to just like take a look at what's so, and then, and then create an access point for choice when it comes to what you want to do, participate in or support or not. Yeah. I think that that's the biggest part to a lot of the work is at least getting people to understand that at some point, a Native person, a Native community, Native group had to be removed from the land that you are now living in or on. Like your house was once occupied, not the actual house, but the land that it sits on, right, was taken care of. Um, by Native people for generations before colonialism, which wasn't that long ago. I think that we think of this history in the United States as being like almost like ancient Greek, like where it was like thousands of years ago. And in in reality, it's only what, 700, 800 years. And that's not a long time um, in the scheme of things, Um, especially when you kind of consider that the quote unquote Indian Wars didn't end until the 1890s. Um, And so in my head, when I ask people to think about land acknowledgements and before even getting to the point of like, what makes a good one, it really has to start with like, who was removed from the land that you're on now? Like, what did that even process look like? So how did they live there? How did they sustain that land? Like, and then how were they forcibly removed or relocated? Um, And like you said, where are they now? And what efforts are being made to try to bring them back into their original homeland, if at all? And that's if they are federally recognized. There's a lot of um, tribes that are not federally recognized by the government for different reasons um, because they didn't fit the quota of a number that was meant to be like to sustain a tribe, like something really, really mundane, but that goes into like a termination, right? To get rid of as many indigenous people as possible to are labeled that way. And so in my head, it's like, you have to, digging deep into that history and kind of think about how you, how anyone has been complicit in that settler colonial narrative. We all are guilty of it, even me. Like I think about all the ways that I've been complicit in colonialism or how I, <laughs> how I regenerate it from time to time and myself. Um, but like having to sit with those hard histories and just think, okay, now how do I make space for those groups of people to come back? And like, mm. maybe that means, and maybe I know people, when they hear like the idea of land back, they think that like, that means that, okay, everyone else must leave now. <laughs> like, and we will reoccupy that space. And it's not, the, it's not what that is. It's just like having authority on the space that you were forcibly relocated or removed from having a seat at the table on how that land is taken care of and, and um, just maintained and the water, like, having a, a space to call your own after not having that space called your own for so long. It's not about people not being allowed. It's about trying to reinvigorate the spaces that you were removed from. Mm. That's so um, clear. <laughs> and a lot less terrifying, you know, you know, maybe I don't, I don't know. like some, big factory that's polluting any land. So there's no threat to, to me, but, um, you know, in hearing that, but I mean, it really is so clear. And, you know, you just reminded me of from an individual or even an organizational perspective. I think, I think what you said about just find out about the land that you're on and the people who were there, what did they do? Where did they live? How did they, you know, 
how did they sustain the land and where are they now and what what are they what are they pointing to what are they asking what are they like like <laughs> you know how does how does helping them reclaim that land affect maybe some of the choices that you might make as an organization or as an individual we have um you just reminded me of uh a farm here in Sutton Massachusetts um and what they one of the things like I was chuckling when you were like, I don't mean someone was living in your house exactly, but actually what we have, you know, what, what's being uncovered in new England is that all of these like stone walls, like if you go hiking in the woods, anywhere out here, anywhere, there's like walls and walls and like miles and miles of stone walls. Those were not created by the colonists. Those were like, like we have this, this historical false narrative that, you know, the colonists showed up here and then, mm-hmm. and like, it was just nothing but forest, right? When in mm-hmm. fact, the truth is, is that the land was highly cultivated and many of mm-hmm. those walls were farms that, that were built and walled off by the, the indigenous people of the land. And so a lot of the, and like all the colonists had to do was move in basically, like mm-hmm. p- push the people out and move in and build a, build a farmhouse. That was the only activity that they needed to do upon arrival. Exactly. And And that there are like actual monuments on this farm that point, like point to the direction of the well and point to the direction of the river. And like those things were all built by the indigenous people who had cultivated that land. Like you said, you know, six, 700 years ago, not, not a thousand years ago or 2000 years ago or 3000 years ago, like pretty like, and probably even more recently than that. And Mm -hmm. so in the, the farmer in uncovering this, like all of these things on the, on the land, instead of just digging them up or, you know, ignoring them is creating a partnership with the Nipmuc to bring school kids onto the land and teach them about Beautiful. how indigenous people farmed that land and built six, like ways for them to know where to get water and how to find this and that. And like, and how the land was all pulled together sustainably through this practice and like, and what we can then learn from it for sustainable farming or even regenerative farming in modern day. Like what can we draw from that to create those practices now and, um, and doing that, like starting to create that for school kids is the thing that they're, that they're looking to build. And, um, and so I was kind of chuckling. I was like, well, you know, like they might not live in your house, but they sure did plow, like make this field real nice for you to move on in. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's more conveniently here. <laughs> yeah, and most of the people don't know this. Most of the roads, most of the high major highways, were all trails, right? That we created for a long time because they were the most accessible. Like we figured out like the best ways to figure out how to get through mountain ranges and like how to trade with one another and like so it made sense that once we were able to like pave them and all like you know that you would follow those same trails because they work. Um, Absolutely. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. the running joke around Boston is that the reason that it, when you look at it, it looks like a big jumbled mess is they just followed the cows and put the road where the, like, if the sheep went that way, we'll put a road here. Like, <laughs> in a way, like it probably, it doesn't, maybe doesn't make sense in like the modern structure of a, of a brand new city, like the grid structure, but it sure made sense when you had to like build those first roads, like 
Mm-hmm. The people who were walking on those roads found the best way around the hill or the best way over the mountain or the best way over the river. And you just exactly. put the road there and it made exactly. sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think like we've pretty well established like what, why would you want to give a land acknowledgement and, and I, and what one is. Um, and I, and I hear you like, I was like, let's not even get into what makes a, a good one. Hopefully through um, following the project and, and all of the questions that we've laid out um, for the participants here, uh, they'll, they'll start to see what are some of the elements that make a quote good land acknowledgement. Um, but uh maybe we can touch on like why why would an organization want to give a land acknowledgement versus an individual and like what would be what where would you give a land acknowledgement like what are some of the circumstances um i think that's definitely a, like it's a common question in my mind like when should i be taking the time to do this and yeah you know versus like launching into a regular conversation with somebody or just starting my event Right. I think um, from where I sit, it's about almost if you're doing like any sort of presentation, I mean, if you're doing like a conference call, I don't think like it's just within your organization. Um, I don't think it needs to be something that's like repeated heavily. Right. Um, But I think that when you have a presentation or maybe people are new to your organization, when um, people are um, getting familiar with your institution, whether whatever that may be. It should be something that is at the forefront because it brings notice to indigenous sovereignty and agency and indigenous presence. It gives that acknowledgement that it will, it, I want to say gives the acknowledgement that the institution you are now affiliated with is working towards building sustainable practices of indigenous people, but that's not always the case. That's the dream. <laughs> That is the dream. <laughs> like, yes, <laughs> that, that's the first start. It's, and, and I think that's something to emphasize here. Like, land acknowledgement is a, the first start. It's the bare minimum thing that anyone can do um, about bringing Indigenous people um, to the table, right, to have space to be able to talk about their needs and their wants. And, um, and that the institution is showing, like, okay, we're actively working with Indigenous people to do right by them. But that's like the very first step. And so for me, a person doing it, like us doing it today was important because, well, we're talking about them and we should practice it, right? Um, mm-hmm. And if you're or me are ever talking about this project, we would want to make sure that our land acknowledgement is always evolving, right? Um, just because it's just a good case. I don't start a land acknowledgement when I'm meeting with my friends, you know, like for, for drinks or dinner. <laughs> like, I don't think that's the, the place. <laughs> Except if they ask me, <laughs> like, right. hey, do you know whose land we're on? And I'm like, I think so. Um, but like, um, for the most part, I sit in the space of, especially when I think of museums, because that's where I work, and my work is in museums, is like a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them hold um, cultural resources from our communities that were maybe stolen or were um, taken without or taken under um, moments of distress from the tribe, meaning that like they had no other option but to sell their item to someone who was willing to pay top dollar for them because of the horrid conditions that reservation life was producing or something. And um, those museums, a lot of them, like um, natural history, even art 
hold up those hold those items. And it takes a lot to get them back into the hands of indigenous people and communities. And so those types of spaces need to at least have a bare minimum understanding of the land that they're on and how the how their institution has benefited from the removal of the people. Um, how to me, I get real meta about it. I think sometimes when I think about this particular topic, because when I look at a museum, I'm thinking like, okay, so there's like 300,000 items from different native cultures, like from across the world, but North America, like what does that mean to have all of these different cultural resources in one space that were prayed over differently, that had different traditions, that had different um, ways of thinking and being, then to be uh, removed from their homelands and placed into another space that had a completely different way of thinking of things, maybe had similar way of thinking, but now is like stored underneath the land that like isn't their home. And like, what does that mean for the benefit of a museum when we're not really paying acknowledgement to like the individuality of each of those tribes represented and then the group of people who had to be removed from the land um, to make that museum possible, right? There's like many different forms of erasure in my head that happen with that type of um, placement of cultural resources. And so in my head, the land acknowledgement for an institution is giving onus to the fact that like we have kind of we screwed up that this mm. is just the first step that we can acknowledge that our our institution has is only was only being able to be built because indigenous people were removed um the only reason we are able to be here today and and like gain money and like get tickets and give tickets and have school groups and like all of these things is because indigenous people had to be removed from this land. That's the only reason our existence is able to sustain itself when you think about yeah. it. And I'm mm -hmm. even thinking like our existence in the format that it is today. And it almost like invites the question, what is, what would it look like? Like, and, and I think, you know, let me start over. Um, what just struck me in what you were sharing is I think there's like this underlying presumption that if, if we didn't remove indigenous people, that we wouldn't have any of these things. And I think that's a false mm -hmm. narrative, right? I think that it, I think that what we would have might take a different form. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very worth the question of like, if we, if we acknowledge the ways that we screwed up, like, I think that's such a simple way of, like a direct way of putting it. If we can acknowledge the ways that we, all the ways that we screwed up, the layers upon layers of erasure here, and then create space to invite indigenous people back in, what new forms and new thing, ways of like having a quote museum could we create that also brings value to the community that acknowledges history, that shares culture that like all the things that museums are technically supposed to do like what maybe a reinvented version of that would be a great thing that screws up a lot less like that would be a nice thing and it and yeah it means like letting go of some of the things that we've come to decide are like the way that we do things um mm -hmm. but that it it creates like it's in service of maybe something different better more sustainable more respectful like more inclusive um and and maybe it's okay to like let those things go and I think that's 
like just acknowledging that the mistake has been made is a really good starting point. But like we like we keep pointing back to, it's just a starting point. And yeah, yeah. And I and I was having a conversation um, with a few of the other people working on this project um, as we've been looking at our social media as another place where we can acknowledge land, right? Especially, um, you know, I'm a runner and a hiker and an athlete and I'm outside a lot. And a lot of the pictures that I post on Instagram, for example, um, and a lot of the stories that I tell are things like where I am out on native land and how like it can often feel it can often feel like you have no power as an individual. Like what is, what am, what am I doing? Like what power do I actually have to make a difference? If like on my Instagram post, I, you know, add the hashtag, like we're on native land and add a hashtag with like acknowledging the tribe whose land I'm on. Right. Like, or if I say in my post, like had a beautiful weekend on land, um, you know, I'm on, I'm on Abenaki land a lot in Wabanaki land and, you know, and acknowledge like, like the, them for keeping this land beautiful and pristine and sustained such that we can be out here and have the kind of, you know, gorgeous weekend backpacking that we had. And mm -hmm. like, but, but what, dif like, quote, what difference does that make, you know? And, but where I see it making a difference is that as people start to catch on that this is like a thing we should be acknowledging, you, I think you naturally become more sympathetic to causes like, you know, we see like in government, we, we get no movement on, on initiatives or no change until they, until like our legislators start to clue in that people actually care about it. Right. Like, right. like until we, until we say with our dollars, with our votes, with our, you know, trends with our, you know, whatever, that this is a cause that we're interested in, or this is a way of being that we prefer, you don't see movement. And right. so I think it is important to create land acknowledgement in lots of different ways that individuals can deliver um, because it starts to move the national narrative. It starts to move like the social culture beyond mm -hmm. like somebody who comes to an, uh, you know, a museum or like someone who's in a school or a, or a, or an educational institution, like mm -hmm. how do we how do we start to raise awareness and like what's the value of awareness? I guess right, so. right. I agree. I agree that it needs to start somewhere. And I often say to people um, when they ask me questions like, "How do you how do you want to keep doing this work?" or like, "What is it that you know that I can do?" I often feel like I can't do enough or I don't do enough. And it's really just that raising of awareness, you know, sense that you're comfortable with, because I think people think that activism should look like protesting and it should, right? I think that like active protesting and marchers, all of the is, is needed and, um, and is a great space for producing change, but so are, you know, paying attention to whose land you're on and actively working to make sure your Instagram posts reflect that. Um, and that way, when people come to ask you questions about it, like, why are you always mentioning that you're on Abenaki land, right? Like, you can tell them, well, this is why. Um, and not everyone will agree with that, right? Like, a lot of people would be like, I've heard this before where you are, not you, but like, where people are, you know, like, this isn't, you know, this is America. And, it, and you know, this, 
And that narrative is like, yes, but the, and it goes back to a whole bunch of other issues that we have in this country, but like America had to be, what had to be built off of the labor and backs and lives of so many people of color. Um, and, and it all starts from like, it wasn't the fact that like indigenous people this one day asked for this, like this one day, but like, great, those boats we were looking for finally came and have delivered people that we have been asking for, you know, um, or I often think about in the descendants of enslaved people um, who were forcibly brought to this land. And when we talk about land acknowledgements, I'm mostly talking to the white audiences um, because like for me, enslaved people and their descendants, they didn't, they were forced here. They were against their will to live on this. Like they had no agency in that. Right. And mm-hmm. so like the way that they honor the land, it looks different for than like the white audiences that we're talking to because white audiences came, well, not all, I shouldn't say everyone, but um, like the Mayflower, the people who came here um, away from religious persecution, right? Had a very set idea on what they wanted this land to look like for themselves and really didn't care much about the other in-between ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the group I'm talking to. Those are the people, the, the descendants I'm talking to when giving these types of discussions because it is those groups of people who have been the ones who've consistently um, benefited from settler colonialism and white privilege um, the most. Like the other day, like having to talk, or it was funny, I was, I'm in an exhibition for um, the Dumbarton House, which is like the daughters of the American Revolution and like about historical preservation. And like, even that organ is like, I struggled with them. Like, do I want to be in a, like represented represented in a space that upholds like the American Revolution as like this beautiful moment in our history. Um, And in one hand, I was like, absolutely not. But then on the second hand, like when is an opportunity like this to raise awareness and to bring, um, um, yeah, to mostly to raise awareness about different groups of Native people and, and what we're going through. Like what other opportunity will I be given? that is like this, that's on that kind of scale, mm. um, you know, because it's not going to happen all the time. And so yeah. I think as an indigenous person, you have to kind of weigh the, the pros and the cons. Even with this project, I struggled, like, is this something I want to do? Is this something like I think would produce more harm than good? Or um, thinking about like, will it, is it taking up space away from Native people who are doing the work? And I don't think it is after our many conversations that we've had and meeting that like this work is constant and it's always evolving. And as long as you're amplifying the voices of the indigenous people who are doing it and not taking from them or appropriating it, then that's what the difference is because it has to start somewhere. These conversations can't just stay in our circles. They have to consistently go out and be in other spaces. Yeah, and I think you touched on kind of the two last points that I would love to create a conversation around just now. Um, And the first one is around those feelings that come up as a white person, as a person who is like a settler colonist. Um, 
And, you know, whose ancestors, like my ancestors were on one of those boats, like in 1628 showed up. Um, and, uh, at least on my father's side of the family and, um, you know, my sister and I, when we did our own family history, kind of laughed about like, oh man, we could, we could apply to be in the DAR and we'd get accepted. Like that's bonkers, you know? And, um, and can you hear my dogs? A little bit, but it's okay. <laughs> Barking at something outside. Um, but anyway, like that's, um, some that natural resistance that pops up right that's like you know that's like I didn't do that I didn't get on the boat like I didn't I didn't you know why should I have to apologize for what my you know what x number of generations before me did and like I didn't bring slaves over or you know whatever like whatever your story is as you know you know as a person here, or even like my mom's side of the family didn't immigrate here until the 1900s. Like, you know, and, and we're fleeing terrible conditions in their own country at the time. And, mm-hmm. you know, which I very much realized when I finally got to go back to where my grandparents came from and like realized like no one would leave this land voluntarily. It's so beautiful here. <laughs> like things Amen. must have been really bad for them to like walk away. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and what is that? Like, but I think what it comes down to is when I look at the current state of indigenous people and, and myself, right? Like, like that's not to say that there aren't disenfranchised white people. It's not to say that like mm-hmm. everything is easy and we have no problems, but mm-hmm. it is to say that like when I can be responsible for what happens next. Like I am not responsible for what happened past tense. And I don't bear like necessarily a personal guilt because I did not get on a boat and come over here and, you know, displace people from their land. But I regularly participate in like what you were saying earlier, even with yourself, I regularly participate in the culture that was put in place as a result of that. And I have influence in how that culture persists and grows into the future. And I, at any point, can take responsibility for the culture that is in place now and make space for other people. I can Mm -hmm. make space for Indigenous people. I can make space for Black people. Um, I can make space for their voices. And through this project, I very much did not want to go reinventing the wheel. I think I was trying to answer the question um, how do I do this well? And what resources are out there? You know, like, in, like, how do I, how do I listen to what indigenous people are telling me? And I saw that I had to like go hunting a little bit, like pulling mm-hmm. pieces together. And so when I thought about, well, what contribution could I make to creating more space for indigenous voices? I'm like, well, I could take all of the stuff that I had to research and put it in one place. Like, that's what I can do. And then, you know, and, and you just were so gracious in creating those conversations with me. And, um, and, and I see that as like really helping, but like, but I see too, that if I had gotten lost down that guilt in the guilt space, it would have been, I wouldn't have been able to move forward. Um, but if I had just let it go with, well, it's not my responsibility because I didn't do it. I also would be very much ignoring my like the position that I hold in modern culture and what modern mm-hmm. culture looks like and, and, and in continuing to perpetuate false narratives about history, like that's mm-hmm. not interesting to me. Um, either. 
Well, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I just wrote this the other day that, you know, colonialism is the quilt that America is built on, right? And because, and there's so many different reasons for that, right? There's so many different responsible parties at hand, right? But the consistent thing that I'm also learning is like the power of whiteness, uh, the, that being the central cause and the central belief for a lot of, um, for a lot of how this country has sustained itself. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of people fall under that umbrella. And I only say unfortunately because that a lot of people either want to work through that and to really confront what that means to have benefited from their whiteness for generations. And a lot of people don't because it, I can imagine it's very daunting. <laughs> like as, as a non-white person, I can hold space for the fact that like, I could only imagine going your whole life thinking one thing and only being shown one thing and like thinking everything is fine. And then someone, and I could be abrasive when I want to, like, and like, um, like being like, you're thinking wrong and this is how you've done harm. And this is how you have done harm. This is what you need, how off putting and like really traumatizing in some ways that could be. Mm -hmm. Um, and how, how that must make someone feel about their existence mm -hmm. and that could be hard and I understand that right as a person in this world I get that but then I also think about the fact that like okay but now what like it's okay to feel that way it's okay to feel hopeless in some ways so it's, it's okay to feel sad about what happened but it's also not okay to just consistently like put your head down and then like hope it goes away um and hope that no one brings it up again or like hope there's not another person like me who will throw it in or like make you question yourself. At the end of the day, it's about in my head, at least trying to get people to understand that like none of us, none of us necessarily asked for this type of life. Like sure. Now, if we could go back then, I'm sure we would like having many conversations and it would throw, and there'd be so many dark and like just really you know I can only imagine like what they would think of us now but like yeah. I often sit in the space of like this is, these types of conversations were never meant to happen in the first place right like these between me and you and their and those the four founders or however you wanted those colonists minds like indigenous people were going to be dead we're going to be long gone we're going to not going to be a part of this this narrative any longer when we got to this point um, right. and so, but we are, and we, this is the, this is what we're doing. And this is how yeah. these conversations have to keep going. And I encourage people to not let that, that, that fear of the unknown or the blame stop you, but to confront it and to kind of let it heal you. And I know that kind of sounds weird, but if you confront it and really start to like understand how it has impacted your life in various ways, like your privileges then you can really start to see where you can make more space for people and like how yeah. being uncomfortable, it's uncomfortable for me to be uncomfortable, but that is okay. We'll come out the other end. Okay. Yeah. And I just am, am seeing too, that like privilege, privilege can look, doesn't necessarily like privilege doesn't necessarily look like money in your pocket or, mm -hmm. you know, a, ho a house that you own, or like some really great career or education, like privilege could simply be existing in a culture that is your own, 
right? Mm -hmm. Like white people very much have the privilege of getting to not be like live in their own culture and not be confronted by erasure. And Mm -hmm. like that alone is a, is a privilege of comfort in a way Mm -hmm. and and a privilege of culture and that, and, and doesn't leave space for that opportunity to be present for the people whose land this is right. Mm -hmm. It's just not there. And like the same with like the enslaved people that were brought here and the same, you know, and, and I mean, I think we can start to see how we do that all over the place, you know, with like, and, and it's pervasive in this culture, but it's definitely a privilege. And so like, you know, for people who don't necessarily quote feel privileged, that might be another place to look is to say like, well, what space can you make for someone else to just be able to live in within their own culture and express it and have that respected and have their land respected in the way that like is representative of that culture. And so I'm, I'm just seeing that newly just now, because that's always one of those places that you, that I always get stuck. I'm like, I know that things stink for you, but like, at least you're white and you get to live in a white culture. Like, you know, like, <laughs> there's right, that exactly. there. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you know, I think, I don't know if you, did you curious. see the video of the woman in Riverside? Um, she played Indian. She's a teacher. Oh my gosh. Yes, I did just see that. And this is reminding oh. me of that, of this instance of like, you she gets I mean I know she's on paid leave right like she gets to go home and stay on paid leave for however long while they investigate um and that in itself is a privilege right because in my head some people on my on my end of like Instagram were like if if me as an indigenous person decided to act like her like put on a blonde wig and like act like a Karen as the as the monitor or as the moniker goes these days, um, yeah. how much backlash I would right. like someone like me would get, right? Um, yeah. How inappropriate it would be for me to act that way. Whereas when you think about this person, and I, that's where I got my my degree was at UC Riverside, um, and I actually would go to that high school during the summer for a program to teach about certain oral histories and stuff like that. Um, and I grew up there, and so. Um, watching that, knowing that that student was indigenous, knowing that that first, that student who was recording is that's his land he's on and having to sit and watch as a teacher, an eighth grade teacher is not even appropriating his culture, appropriating like, like Oklahoma, (laughs) like how, how this, how dismissive any racist that must have been. And I know he's mm-hmm. kind of laughing in it, but like when you think about it, like I would be more in shock that this person felt like it was okay to behave that way in front of students, knowing that that student, probably more than likely knowing that student was indigenous. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what I mean. Like people have to be uncomfortable, today. uncomfortable. Sorry if that was me. That was me. Um, that, yeah. um, so I'm like the outlook sign is calling my name. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm like watching the time tick by here and and like this is just yeah. a rich conversation. And it, it and is. it's just so perfectly, I think, puts a button on on the whole on the whole conversation, which is like people mm-hmm. are going to mess up, right? Like I would imagine like like there's the outrage of like what is wrong with this teacher, but like 
and and there's the grace that's given that maybe we're pointing to that isn't given other places. And where do we, where do we draw that line or that expectation of what you should know and what you shouldn't know and who we give grace to and who we don't, that's a whole conversation in and of itself. But I think what it, when, when we're looking at it from the lens of what are we up to here and inviting people in to the work of decolonization or the work of, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion and inclusion inevitably mistakes and sometimes really big mistakes get made and Mm -hmm. you know and 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 even in answering the question of like how do you make it what makes a land acknowledgement good or what makes an action good um like a good action to take and how do I actually be helpful and not you know continue to take up space from indigenous people or like erase them from the from the conversation pardon me um and, and I think you're pointing to right there is like, it's going to happen. Like you're going to upset people. You might get put on paid leave. <laughs> you know, you might, you might have an uncomfortable conversation that, you know, where there's no agreement. Um, you might try something and have it blow up in your face. Uh, and that that's going to happen. Um, but are there any, do you have any, like, well, before I even get into, do you have any tips? Like I also just acknowledging that's going to happen. And as long as we're in communication with each other, we will get through it. Like we will get through the mistakes. The way we got through the, the you know, the black squares on Instagram and Facebook, the way that we got, that we get through all of this stuff and continue the conversation, keep moving forward and continuing to stay in the, in the work. But it, but mistakes are going to happen because you don't know what you don't know. And, right, and I think in this yeah. and with that example, it was I, I said she was acting actively ignorant. Right, there is an active ignorance. Total to agreement that. there. Yeah, like, like, all right, let's like I think we can like put that one in a box. Yeah. And be like, oh, this was bad. And she really should have known that that was bad. Like, you really yeah, have to exactly. be trying hard to be teaching eighth grade with Indigenous students in your classroom and not know. Like, you need to be intentionally not making this important. Like, but and but I like, hope she would yeah. humble herself enough to like take this moment to be like actually not thinking about herself in this moment I would hope that she as an educator would be like I feeling bad yeah and feeling like crap I think that's fine like that's gonna happen but then taking a moment to be like how have I actively hurt the students I was teaching um and how do I now move forward with humility and an understanding that I have a lot of work to do um and actively trying to do the work rather than letting it sit in a space of like, no one understands me. They're just attacking me like a selfish space rather yeah. than a, I hope that's what happens. And I yeah. believe that the best I like ask you for advice, there is hope in this work. It's not all bad. <laughs> it's not, yeah. I, I have, I work now in a space of a museum that actively talks about it. The, it's colonial history that has, that has signage that points to that history that um all of it like and that we talk about it extensively all the time about how we can do better um yeah it's possible it's not a hopeless cause but it takes work and humility on everyone doing the work yeah yeah I fully agree and so to kind of sign us off um are there a couple of a couple of things that you would say for somebody who is now going to be writing a land acknowledgement of 
something that they might want to keep in mind as they go through the process. Um, and I'm really hearing like one of those things is like an open humility of like, as you learn things that might feel really uncomfortable, um, that, that there's a humbleness and a, and an openness to just being with those feelings and, and taking some responsibility for the impact of that history. Um, and maybe mm-hmm. the impact of something you currently have been participating in, um, right. and just being with it and, and that's okay. Um, is there mm-hmm. anything else that you would suggest that people keep in mind that might help them avoid some of like the really common pitfalls of when things don't go well? Don't just do a land acknowledgement because you feel like you have to have one. Actually put intention behind it. Um, be intentional with how you how anyone approaches this work and being intentional about how you want to work with Native people. And I think mm-hmm. doing a land acknowledgement is in one way owning up to the fact that you are now opening yourself up to actively collaborating and making space for Indigenous people. Because like we, we were kind of talking about in the beginning, it, um, it can be performative if then there's no action behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't necessarily need to point to that in your, in your land acknowledgement. If you, some people do, I've seen, I've seen an array of different land acknowledgements in my time and they're all, <laughs> I've seen a lot of bad ones, but I've seen some really good ones where one of my dear friends signs off from her, like as a person of Dutch and, um, Scandinavian descent, I recognize the privilege I have, um, um, while working on Potawatomi territory and that I must do the work on how do I better understand this people's history mm. and how I can like owning that in their land acknowledge, owning the responsibility. Um, and some people go that route. Others are just like, I want to acknowledge this and that's good. But then it's like, what happens next? So really thinking about like your intention for doing one, not just because you feel like you need one to fit in or like you think it will, it's, if you don't have one, you're going to look bad. I would rather have someone have not have one than to have one that just looks like a something they piece together out of a out of haste or worry um, or just ignorance. I've seen some one on one I saw one time was just like completely devoid of any historical facts, um, even though it had like the treaty of blah, 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 like it it really didn't reflect at all mm. what had happened in that territory. Um, and they acknowledge, they're like, well, I just know I needed to have one on there. Well, that's not, mm. that's doing more harm because now you're sending emails with that signature to people and pointing them towards history that is not true. Mm. Right. So, like, <laughs> so do be the intentional. Work. <laughs> be intentional, do the work and be, be humble. And that's what I, I tell it. myself every day is to be humble because I am an Aquarius and in my head, I know everything. And I know no wrong. And I have to remind myself to be humble every day. Even doing this, I don't know everything. Right? What we talk about, this is just from my perspective, where I'm coming from. Yeah. Um, and people will have a whole array of different experiences. But I think that when people start to understand that we're not a monolith, that there's going to be different experiences is when they can actually say like, oh, I, you know, this makes more sense to me, or maybe this is what I, what I associate with and how I can build from and like really Mm -hmm. get into the meat of what they want to do when they see that there's many different forms of and groups of people doing this work. Mm. 
Yeah. I think that's also, it's a great reminder that, you know, everything that like you, you just so perfect everything that we talked about is from our perspective. There are so many perspectives. There's so many nations, there's so many peoples and so many traditions. And I, and, and I also think that's going to be, you know, for our, for our participants here, part of the fun too, of like, as they start to learn more, you know, whatever your interest is, there's something here for you to create connection, to create, you know, possibilities for the future to, um, you know, align and support someone who's doing something, you know, whether it's art or politics or music or, um, farming or, you know, sustainability or like any of these conversations that we have, um, hiking, running, like one of my favorite groups to follow is, um, is like all the running groups, like indigenous running groups. They're like my favorite Instagram follows. Um, and, and so I feel like, I feel like there is like some, some landmines in the fact that there's so much variety, but also so much possibility. And, mm-hmm. um, and so I feel like, all right, listeners, like go, go start learning. <laughs> yeah. Go start learning and find, find what makes, find what is not known to you. And you know, I'm sure you'll find many different things that you never thought about. And that to me is what's, what's important about this work is the discovery. We have to use discovery in a bad way. I think when we talk about like this land, but I think for citizens, American citizens, the discovery of the truth of who we are is just is beautiful yeah. and rewarding. And um, that we aren't, I think people, when you like, we've pointed to people think that indigenous people just want your, you know, European descendants out and, and like, we wish this never happened. And yeah, I think on some extent, we all wish like our ancestors, like ancestors maybe made different decisions and all of that, but then here we are now what? And I think that this is what we're trying to do here. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you mm-hmm. so much for your time today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for being here along for this, this ride, not just for this conversation, but for this project. And just you're, I'm so grateful and appreciative and I just like acknowledge your wisdom and generosity as well. So thank you. Thank you. This is fun. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today and a big thank you to Dr. Roberts for her openness, generosity, and trust in creating this conversation for us and for all of her help in consulting on the Land Acknowledgement Project. At its heart, resilience is really about being with the totality of what is so and acknowledging it. And through being with what's so, finding a pathway to move forward. May we all find the courage to be with our past and through acknowledging all of it, be responsible for our present. You can check out the Land Acknowledgement Builder on our project website, but first acknowledgement.thinkific.com, which we will put in the show notes. And you can support Dr. Roberts and her work at mirandawriteshistory.com. And don't forget to check out her podcast, Exhibiting Kinship, also linked in the show notes. Next week, we will be back in your podcast feed with the first of five final episodes of season one of the Radical Resilience Podcast. See you then. (laughs) 